and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it's my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today is the day. We finally read Luke chapter 24. We bring our study of the life of Jesus through the lens of Luke to a close. And it's pretty crazy. I honestly didn't think we'd get here in a way. Like it felt so far away when I was starting in Luke chapter 1 and 2 and 3. And so it's kind of bittersweet uh, to be here. Um... Today is the final day. Today is the climax of the story, the crescendo, the resurrection, the moment in history that defies anything and everything we humans think is possible. And it is the moment on which all of the faith that we carry, all of the Christianity that we we claim hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For through that, everything he says and did is proven to be true and to be extremely powerful. He was God. He was and is the God-man. So it's pretty important. And it's a short enough chapter today that we have the capacity, I think, to read it all and study it all without it being an epically long episode. Um... Because I did look at the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, to see what it adds. And it doesn't add too much. You'll find that Luke goes pretty quick through the uh, overall story. And I know the other um, Gospels might have really, really powerful and important pieces that I would love to read and love for us to read. So we might at least study the very end of Jesus's life in the next couple of episodes. Um, just so we can see it from every single angle and not just one book or one or two books, but all the books. Because so, I really think his resurrection and all the, the little bits and pieces associated with it are really, really important. So that's what we're going to do. Where we left off yesterday was the uh, second half of Luke 23. We studied the actual crucifixion, the excruciating crucifixion. And it was indeed an excruciating episode, a necessary episode, but never easy to study the depth of the suffering spiritually, psychologically, physically, and emotionally that Jesus went through at his death. The very end of that chapter had us left off with his burial. Joseph of Arimathea had asked Pilate for Jesus' body, which normally wouldn't have been allowed. They normally make them sort of decompose on the cross and and be consumed by animals. Um, but because it was the Feast of Passover, uh, it wasn't a good look to have dead bodies in town when you have people pilgrimaging all from all over the space the world really to to this city um so Pilate obliged him to take the body and to put it into a tomb the women who had followed Jesus all along and watched his death take place also followed Joseph um 
to where he laid the body so that they could both mourn him and try to help prepare prepare his body with oils and fragrances. And so that's where we were left. Um, so let's go ahead and let's not waste any time so we can read this whole chapter together and finish the story in Luke chapter 24. Alrighty, we are reading Luke chapter 24 out of the Amplified Bible as usual. In case you want to follow along, feel free to pull up the Amplified Bible so you can get every extra little bit of context um, and information to round out our understanding of Luke's perspective. Alright, beginning in verse 1 here. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn... The women went to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared to finish anointing the body, and they found the large circular stone rolled back from the tomb. But when they went inside, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed and wondering about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothing stood near them. And as the women were terrified and were bowing their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why are you looking for the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise from death to life? And they remembered his words. And after returning from the tomb, they reported all of these things to the eleven apostles and to all the rest. Now, They were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But their report seemed to seem like idle talk and nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping at the small entrance and looking in, he saw only the linen wrappings, and he went away, wondering about what had happened. And then that very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing it, Jesus himself came up and began walking with them. But their eyes were miraculously prevented from recognizing him. Then Jesus asked them, What are you discussing with one another as you walk along? And they stood still, looking brokenhearted. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger visiting Jerusalem who is unaware of the things which have happened here in these recent days? Jesus asked, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel and set our nation free. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things, these things happened. And also some of the women among us shocked us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. Then they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to trust and believe in everything that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things, and only then to enter his glory? 
Then, beginning with Moses and throughout all the writings of the prophets, he explained and interpreted for them the things referring to himself that were found in all the scriptures. When they approached the village where they were going, he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him not to go on, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is just about ended. So he went inside to stay with them. And it happened that as he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were suddenly opened by God, and they clearly recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and opening the scriptures to us? They got up that very hour and went back to Jerusalem and found the eleven apostles gathered together and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon Peter. They began describing in detail what had happened on the road and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself suddenly stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said, Why are you troubled? And why are doubts rising in your hearts? Look at the marks in my hands and my feet and see that it is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. After saying this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still did not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. Then he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything which has been written about me in the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to help them understand the scriptures and said, And so it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance necessary for forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Listen carefully. I am sending the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, upon you. But you are to remain in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed and fully equipped with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, fully understanding that he lives and that he is the Son of God. And they were continually in the temple, blessing and praising God. Alrighty, well... I don't know what it is, but that last chapter of Luke just seems like, um, like it's rushed or something. Like, like he's leaving out so much. So I'm looking forward to tomorrow reading the resurrection story from each of the gospels so we can get every perspective of all that he did because he did so much more than just appear to his disciples once and appear to that couple that was walking on the road to Emmaus. That, those are two very important, very significant stories, but there is more, much more than he did, that he did during his um, resurrection before he went to heaven. And so I want us to get all of it, but I think nevertheless, there is still some really, really important takeaways um, from this final chapter of Jesus's life through the lens of Luke 
Um, so let's turn now to our commentary in the Enduring Word and let's see what it says. So it starts out with the women, right? The women who discover the empty tomb of Jesus. They went to the tomb to complete the preparation of his body. But when they got there, they found that the stone was rolled away. And when they went inside, there was no body to be found. The commentary says that Jesus was crucified on Friday or on Thursday by some accounts. After his entombment, the tomb was sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers, according to Matthew 27. The tomb stayed sealed and guarded until discovered by these women on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. A rich man like Joseph of Arimathea would likely have a tomb carved into solid rock. This tomb was in a garden near the place of crucifixion, according to John 19. The tomb would have a small entrance and perhaps one or more compartments where bodies were laid out after being wrapped with linen strips, smeared with spices, aloes, and ointments. Customarily, the Jews left these bodies alone for a few years until they decayed down to the bones, and then the bones were placed in a small stone box known as an ossuary. The ossuary remained in the tomb with the remains of other family members. The entrance to the tomb was blocked by a heavy, circular-shaped stone, securely rolled in a channel so only several strong men could move it. This was done to ensure that no one would disturb the remains. John chapter 19 verse 42 specifically tells us that the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea had that Jesus was laid in was close to the place of his crucifixion and each of the two suggested places for Jesus's death and resurrection bear this out. Joseph probably didn't like it that the value of his family tomb decreased because the Romans decided to crucify people nearby. Yet it, remain, yet it reminds us that in God's plan, the cross and the power of resurrection are always permanently and closely connected. Oh, nice little, uh, <laughs> nice little connection point they found there. This became the day of Christian worship. The change from the traditional and biblical Sabbath is in itself a strong evidence of the resurrection because it shows the strength of the disciples' conviction about what happened on that day. So let's look at these women who <clears throat> came and found him gone. It says these women are of special note. They, when it says they and certain other women with them, they refers to the women from Galilee who saw Jesus put in the tomb. Luke agrees with Mark chapter 15 and Matthew chapter 27 that they included Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James. The certain other women with them included Joanna and others who were unnamed. These women came first by a wonderful providence before the apostles, apostles to confute that impudent lie made by the priests that the disciples had stolen the body away. The body of Jesus was hastily prepared for burial by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, according to John 19. The women came to properly complete the hurried job performed immediately after Jesus' death. Mark chapter 16 tells us that the women discussed the problem of what to do with the heavy stone blocking the entrance to the tomb. The actual event of Jesus' res resurrection is nowhere described, but the discovery of it is recorded in some detail. Here, the women who intended to give Jesus' body a more proper burial discovered that the stone was rolled away from the tomb and that the body of Jesus was not inside. 
This lack of spectacular detail itself speaks for the historicity of the New Testament documents. There is no attempt on the part of the writers to embellish the event of the resurrection. Matthew 27 reminds us that there was a guard set around the tomb. The stone could not have been rolled away by the women. They were not strong enough. Or by the disciples. Even if they were brave enough, they could not overcome the armed guards. No one else would have wanted to roll away the stone. And Matthew 28 tells us that it was an angel who rolled it away. The stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. John chapter 20 tells us that Jesus, in his resurrection body, could pass through material barriers. The stone was rolled away so that others could see in and be persuaded that Jesus Christ was and is risen from the dead. So, now we go down to verse 4 where the women are very confused about what's going on. And then they see these two men standing by them in shining garments. They were very afraid of these men. They bow their faces to the earth. And the men then say to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you that... Um, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And the women then remembered his words. So once the women saw the stone rolled away and the tomb was empty, their immediate reaction was that they were greatly perplexed. They did not expect to find an empty tomb. This shows that the resurrection accounts cannot be the product of wishful thinking. They were not even expecting that it could, ca- could happen. Even as angels announced the birth of Jesus... So they also announced the resurrection of Jesus. The announcement of his birth was made to a few humble people, considered unimportant by the culture. His resurrection announced by angels to a few women. This was a wonderfully logical question when the angels asked, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? The angels seemed almost surprised that the women were surprised. After all, the angels had heard what Jesus said regarding his resurrection, and they knew that the women had heard this also. They naturally wondered why the women were surprised. (laughs) The angel's question made a point. The living are not to be found among the dead. We should not expect spiritual life among those who do not have it. Many look for Jesus in dead things, religious traditionalism, formalism, man's rules, human effort, and ingenuity. We find Jesus only where there is but we find Jesus only where there is resurrection life, where he is worshipped in spirit and in truth. Then the angel said, he is not here. These were some of the most beautiful and important words ever spoken by an angel to men. One, one may look all over Jerusalem and see countless thousands of tombs, but one will never find the tomb of Jesus because he is not here. Ever so often, someone claims to have found evidence of the tomb of Jesus or the bones of Jesus. Each claim is found to be untrue, while the testimony of the angels is proved true over and over again. He is not here. Even the beginning of the resurrection account refutes many of the false alternative theories suggested by some. The wrong tomb theory is answered by Luke 23. The women knew exactly which tomb Jesus was buried in. The wishful thinking theory is answered by Luke 24 and uh, verse 4 and 11, which note the surprise of the women and the disciples of the news of Jesus' resurrection. The animals ate the body theory is answered by the presence of the stone in Luke 24. The swoon theory is answered by the presence of the stone. 
and the grave robber theory is answered by the presence of the Roman guard and the seal in Matthew 27. Hmm. So the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise again. This was what Jesus had told them and this is what the angels were reminding these women that he had said. To the women, it must have seemed like a long time ago that Jesus had even said these words. Nevertheless, they needed to remember them and the angels reminded them of what he said. Must is the critical word here. Just as much as the crucifixion of Jesus was necessary and ordained, so was his resurrection. Jesus would have never come to the place of Calvary unless there was also an empty tomb of resurrection there. And it says finally that they remembered his words. The first notes of hope were sounded in the hearts of the women when they remembered Jesus' words. The empty tomb, the presence of angels, the words of the angels in and of themselves could not change their hearts, but his words could change and cheer their hearts. So then verse 9 goes on to show us that they returned from the tomb and they went straight to the 11 disciples and the rest of the group to tell them what happened. And then the scriptures tell us that it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, and other women who went unnamed. And their words seemed to the disciples like idle tales, and they didn't believe them. So straight away, the disciples were like, nah, I'm, I'm not believing you. So the women who saw the evidence of the resurrected Jesus and remembered his words were excited about what seemed to be the most wonderful news possible, that Jesus was alive and had triumphed over death. They would not be excited if Jesus had only somehow miraculously survived the ordeal of the cross. The news that he was alive meant so much more to them than knowing Jesus was just a survivor. It meant he was the conqueror over death and that he was everything they had hoped for and more. Oof, that's so good. These women, these women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other unnamed women... These were the women mentioned in Luke 24, 1, as those who discovered the empty tomb. Three are mentioned specifically, and then an unnamed group of other women. These were given the privilege of being the first to tell others of the risen Jesus. The only references to Mary Magdalene in the Gospels concern her as a witness of the crucifixion and of the resurrection, and as she is mentioned in all four Gospels. And as one from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons, if you remember that. Joanna is mentioned in Luke chapter 8 as one of the women who accompanied Jesus and provided for his needs. She's also noted in Luke 8 as the wife of Chusa, who helped manage Herod's affairs. She was likely a woman of privilege and resources. Mary, the mother of James, is only mentioned in connection with the resurrection appearances of Jesus. She was apparently the mother of one of the apostles, James the Less, not James the brother of John. Despite their excitement, the testimony of the women was not believed. In fact, to the apostles, it seemed as if the women told idle tales, a medical word used to describe the babbling, babbling of a fevered and insane man. <laughs> In the first century, the testimony of women was not deemed authoritative. Luke's inclusion of the incident serves to emphasize his high regard for women. The disciples were not men poised on the brink of belief and needing only the shadow of an excuse before launching forth into a proclamation of resurrection. They were utterly skeptical. And unfortunately, the words of these women were not going to be enough to move them. However, in verse 12, it says what? It says, Peter arose and ran to the tomb. 
And it says, But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. We know from John chapter 20 that both Peter and John ran to the tomb together. Uh, I don't know why Luke doesn't mention that here, that it was two men, but nevertheless. They saw the grave clothes, but not as if they had been ripped off after a struggle. They saw the grave clothes of Jesus lying in perfect order, as if a body had just passed out of them. When John saw that, he believed, and Peter marveled. They had not seen the risen Jesus, but they knew that something powerful had happened to cause a body to leave behind the grave clothes in such a manner. Peter and John both observed what was in the tomb, and John believed. This tells us that Peter analyzed the situation. We know that John believed because that's what it says in John chapter 20. But Peter analyzed the situation. He knew something spectacular had happened because of the condition of the grave clothes. But he, because he had forgotten the words of Jesus, uh, he did not yet understand and believe the way that John did. Hmm. All right, let's take a quick break, and we're going to now read into uh, the Road to Emmaus story. All right, this is one of my favorite stories because of that line where they say, did our hearts not burn within us as he spoke? Oh, I love that. I love that like, they, that their bodies have a physical reaction to Jesus' power and presence. I think that's just so cool. Also, how stinking cool would it have been to have had Jesus walking alongside you on this like seven mile walk back from Jerusalem, just chatting with you and telling you these deep truths of the scriptures and showing you everywhere that he is evident in the scriptures and you don't even know that it's him. I mean, what a, what a cool, wildly cool moment. So let's take a look at what the commentary tells us about this particular story. Well, let's first read the story back to ourselves here. Um, two of the disciples, or two people connected to the disciples, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. So on this Sunday, these two disciples traveled to Emmaus from Jerusalem. As they walked together, probably returning from the Passover celebration to Jer in Jerusalem, it gave them the opportunity to talk. These weren't famous apostles. They were simple and half-anonymous followers of Jesus. I take it as characteristic of the Lord that in the glory of his resurrection life, he gave himself with such fullness of disclosure to these unknown and undistinguished men. He still reveals himself to lowly hearts. Here is the Savior for the common man. Here is the Lord who does not spurn the humble. There is considerable uncertainty about the original location of the village of Emmaus. Luke mentions that it was about seven miles uh, from Jerusalem. If he meant round trip, the reference would fit rather nicely with a, with a town Josephus identified as Emmaus, which he located um, of roughly 30 stadia from Jerusalem. Stadia, just another form of a measurement, I guess. Luke almost certainly obtained his information from one of the two disciples and probably in writing. The account has all the effect of personal experience. As these two people talked, they spoke of the things that were biggest on their hearts. All of these 
all of these things which had happened, the things regarding the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus came alongside these disciples and went with them for a while, yet for a time they were miraculously prevented from seeing who Jesus was. Spurgeon says that when two saints are walking together, Jesus is very likely to come and make the third one in the company. Talk of him and you will soon talk with him. Oof, that's good. Okay, so verse 17, it continues on like this. It says that Jesus said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and you're sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have not known the things which happen there in these th- these days? I love how it's basically like, are you crazy? Like, were you, do you live under a rock? Like, that's essentially what he's saying, because it's like, how would you not know what, what I'm talking about? And Jesus said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yeah, and certain women of our company who arrived at the term er- tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying so, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they still didn't see him. Jesus opened this conversation by asking them what they were talking about. (laughs) From this, we can know that Jesus had walked silently with them for a while, just listening as they carried on the conversation. It was evident in their countenance and perhaps even in their manner of walking that they were sad. Jesus knew both what they already knew, that they were sad, and what they did not yet know, that they had no reason to be sad. Jesus probably smiled when they said, Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? Um, he knew pretty well what had happened in those days, but then he still asked him what things, you know, he's playing, he's playing dumb here a little bit and saying this, Jesus skillfully played along with the conversation, encouraging the men to reveal their hearts. Even though he knew their hearts, there was value in them saying it to Jesus. The men explained what they did know about Jesus. They knew his name and where he was from. They knew he was a prophet. They knew he was mighty in deed and word. They knew he was crucified. They knew he promised to redeem Israel, and they knew others had said that he rose from the dead. These disciples had a hope that was disappointed. Their hope was not truly disappointed, but in some ways their hope was misguided. That it was Jesus who was going to redeem Israel. Jesus would show them that their true hope was fulfilled in him and in his resurrection. The only things these disciples had to go on had to go on was the testimony of others, but they were slow to believe. The report of the women meant little to them, and the report of Peter and John, who had seen the grave clothes, meant little because they didn't see Jesus, and that was what they were looking for. Where is Jesus? I don't really care what you say. We want to know where he is, otherwise I don't really believe what you're saying. Jesus wanted to know from them what he wants to know from all of us today. Can we believe without seeing with our own eyes? We can believe and we must believe based on the reliable eyewitness testimony of other people. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus told them that the problem with their belief was more in their heart than their head. 
We often think the main obstacles to belief are in the head, but they are actually in our heart. He says to them, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? They should have believed that all the, what all the prophets had spoken, that the Messiah would suffer first and then be received in glory. Hmm. But these were common, simple men. They had lost hope. They had lost joy. They had a sense of spiritual desertion. They had not lost desire. They still loved to talk about Jesus clearly, but they had not yet seen the necessity of the cross. Jesus began to teach them what was surely one of the most spectacular Bible studies ever taught. It says that he began in the in Moses and all the prophets, went through all the prophets, and he told them all about the Messiah. Morrison says that it is a sign to us that he is still the same. Though he has passed into the resurrection glory, he still goes back to the old familiar scripture, which he had learned beside his mother's knee. Hmm. He expounded to them in all the scriptures. This describes how Jesus taught them. The idea of expounding is to simply let the text speak for itself, exactly what a Bible teacher should do, his or her best to do. The ancient Greek word for expounded has the idea of sticking close to the text. In another passage, when Luke used this word, it is expressed with the word translated. When Jesus explained things concerning himself in the Old Testament, he didn't use fanciful allegories or speculative ideas. He expounded, which means he stuck close to the text. The scripture was a familiar book to them. And what did our Lord do when he met with them? He took the book they had studied all their lives. He turned to the pages that they knew so well. He led them down by the old familiar texts. Then as we see, as, as the, they basically get to their village in verse 28, um, Jesus basically indicated or acted as if he was going to continue walking, but it says they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. So he was like, yeah, okay, I'll come with you. He went and then went in to stay with them. And then as they were sitting at the table, Jesus took some bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they knew who he was. But he instantly vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? Hmm. Jesus acted as if he might continue on farther, but did not want to force his company on these disciples. But they constrained him. That shows that even though they didn't know this was Jesus in their midst, they knew they wanted to spend as much time as they could with this man. Spurgeon says it is a very strong word that they constrained him. It is akin to the one which Jesus used when he said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. They not only invited him, but they held him. They grasped his hand. They tugged at his skirts. They said he should not go. These men were not present at the last supper that Jesus had with his 12 disciples. They knew nothing of the sacramental nature of breaking bread in theological terms. Morrison says it was in no sense a sacramental meal, as we use the word sacrament in our theology. It was a frugal supper in a village home of two tired travelers and another. Yet it was then in the breaking of bread and not in any vision of resurrection splendor that they knew that their companion was the Lord. Remember how I was telling you guys one last meal when he had the last supper, how, how that, that, that's what like, ooh, that's what warms my heart about Jesus so much. He just loves to dine with us. <laughs> 
He is just so communal, so relational, so cozy in his way that he loves to spend time around the dinner table with us, relaxed and in conversation and over good food. And there's so much that he does across the table from us in a meal. There's just so much he does with us concerning food. Just something really special and awesome about the heart of God. Okay, so then it says their eyes were opened and they knew him, right? When he broke that bread. Though it was not what might be called a sacramental meal, there was something in it that showed them who the mysterious and wise guest was. Before their eyes before their eyes were restrained, and now their eyes were opened, and he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Morrison suggested several ways that they might have recognized Jesus in the breaking of bread. The way he took the place of host with the quiet air of majesty. The way he gave the blessing over the meal that they would eat. The pierced hands that gave them the bread. However it was, whether by word or hand, they felt irresistibly that this was Jesus. Some little action, some dear familiar trait, told them in a flash that this was the Christ. Oof. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. Just imagining what was it? What was it that gave him away? (laughs) What was it? Jesus may be right in front of you, walking with you and sitting down with you at every meal, and your eyes could be restrained from seeing him. We therefore should pray that God would open our eyes to see Jesus as he is, as being with us all of the time. Oh, man, that's so good. As soon as their eyes were opened to who Jesus was, he left miraculously, and they both said what was on their hearts. Their hearts burned as they heard him speak and teach. Even when they didn't know it was Jesus, even when they didn't believe he was risen from the dead, their hearts still burned because of the ministry of God's word and of Jesus, the living word of God. God's word can have the same effect in our heart, even when we don't know that it is Jesus doing that work. Neither of them knew the other's heart burned until Jesus left, and after that, they could have a fellowship of flaming hearts together. One reason Jesus left was so that they would love one another and minister to one another. I love how what it says in the next verse, verse 33, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. That was a seven-mile journey that they just got done finishing, that they just begged Jesus to stay with them because they were all understandably quite tired. It was quite a journey. But they are so full of joy, excitement. You can't even imagine the exuberance. I would, I would guess that they're feeling in that moment that they are ready to just get right back on their feet and make that seven-mile journey straight back to Jerusalem because what? They want to tell everybody. It says that they found the 11, the 11 disciples, because remember Judas is dead, so they went from 12 to 11, And those who were with them gathered together, and they said, The Lord is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. And they told told about the things that had happened on the road, and how how, how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Sorry. After a seven-mile walk one way, they were so excited that they went seven miles back, and probably much faster on the return. They had the passion to tell the great news of Jesus' resurrection. They had mutual confirmation of the resurrection of Jesus. Though the risen Jesus was not physically in their midst, his resurrection had been confirmed by more than two witnesses. But then it says that Jesus appears now to the whole group of them, at least to the eleven. 
It says that as they were saying these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and he said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you why did doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet. Take a look. It's I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe, for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So he's like, look, a spirit doesn't eat. <laughs> a spirit doesn't have bones. Like, touch me. Let me eat something. You know, he's very practical in trying to prove himself. This seems to be the same late Sunday meeting Jesus had with the eleven described in John chapter 20. In his gospel, John specifically wrote that Jesus appeared to them when the doors were shut. It seems that Jesus suddenly and perhaps miraculously appeared to the disciples in the midst of a closed room without making any obvious entrance. Peace to you, he said. These were words with new meaning. Now that Jesus had risen from the dead, now true peace could come between God and man and among men. Mm. Jesus first displayed his wounded hands and feet to the disciples. In this, Jesus wanted to establish both his identity and his bodily existence, and that it was in a transformed state, the same body he had been in before the cross, upon the cross, and that was set in the tomb. It's remarkable to consider that the resurrection body of Jesus retains the wounds he received in his sufferings and crucifixion. There are many possible reasons for this. To exhibit the wounds to the disciples that they would know that it was the very same Jesus. To be the object of eternal amazement to the angels. To be his ornaments, trophies of his great work for us. To memorialize the weapons with which he defeated death to serve as advocates in his perpetual intercession for us, to preserve the evidence of humanity's crimes against him. Spurgeon says that in the apostles' case, the facts were tested to the utmost, and the truth was not admitted till it was forced upon them. I am not excusing the unbelief of the, of the disciples, but I claim that their witness was all the more weighed in it because it was the result of such cool investigation. Handle me and see, Jesus said. Jesus wanted to assure them that he was a real physical body, though of a different order than our own bodies. The resurrected Jesus was not a ghost or a phantom. He distinctly denied that his resurrection was of his spirit only, for he invited them to touch his hands and his feet. The evidence of a material body are the evidences of a material body are abundant. The account is precisely concerned to refute the notion that Jesus only arose in spirit or as a ghost. Rather, he arose in spirit and in body, that is, in a spiritual body. Some make much of the fact that Jesus said his body had flesh and bones, and not the more normal phrasing of flesh and blood. The idea is that perhaps the resurrection body of Jesus did not have blood, and perhaps neither will ours. It is also possible that Jesus said flesh and bones because blood could not be felt, but bones can be discerned by touch. Curiously, for that moment, joy kept them from believing him and says they still did not believe for joy. <laughs> Curiously, joy kept them from faith. This may have been true in the sense that we may believe something is too good to be true. Yet it is also true that God wants from us a reasoned, thought-out faith. 
not a giddy, easy believism. Jesus wanted them to think and believe. That's so good. And But to continue to prove himself in a sense, he says, have you any food here? To demonstrate both his identity and the reality of his spiritual body, Jesus ate in their presence. And most of Jesus' resurrection appearances, he eats with the disciples. God love it. Jesus always eaten. This would be another powerful evidence that this was the same Jesus doing something with them that he did many times before. And then finally, in verse 44, Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Jesus almost said, I told you so, by reminding them that all had happened just as he said it would. To help his disciples take it all in, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. It must have been before this that the disciples were actually born again by God's Spirit, when Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20. In that one hour in the upper chamber with Christ, scripture became a new book to the disciples. Never forget how earnestly and constantly our Lord appealed to the testimony of the word. Jesus wanted them to understand that the cross was not some unfortunate obstacle that had to be hurdled. It was a necessary part of God's redemptive plan for man, and that it would be in the name of a crucified and risen Savior that repentance and remission of sins will be brought to the world. They were told by their great master what to preach and where to preach it, and how to preach it, and even where to begin to preach it. (laughs) To preach the gospel in Jesus' name means to preach it under his orders, on his authority, knowing repentance and remission of sin come by the virtue of his name and refusing to preach it in our own name. Jesus solemnly told them that they were witnesses of these things, not only witnesses of the events surrounding the work of Jesus, but also of the commission itself to spread the gospel. This was a work they were all mutually responsible for. Their work was to begin at Jerusalem. There are many reasons why it was fitting for the gospel to begin here, but it wouldn't end there. And then he um, says to them that he's going to send the promise of the Father, also known as the Holy Spirit. He sends the promise of the Father upon them. But wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with this power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. And then when he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were in the temple, continually praising and blessing God. So they could not do the work Jesus had called them to do unless they were endued with power from on high. And that power would come as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. This is where we understand what we've talked about before, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has already breathed on them in John 20 to receive the Holy Spirit. So they have been born again now, finally. But he's still saying that's not enough. 
You need to wait until you receive the promise of the Father when the Holy Spirit will come upon you, not just in you, but upon you, that power on high. And then you should go and do this work that I've told you about preaching the gospel in my name. Jesus continued to appear to his people for 40 days following his resurrection. Eventually came the day when he would ascend to heaven. And when he did, Jesus left the earth, blessing his church, and he continues to bless them as much as his people will receive. Jesus had to ascend so that confidence would be put in the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, not in the geographical presence of Jesus. The ascension differs radically from Jesus' vanishing from the sight of the disciples at Emmaus and similar happenings. There is an air of finality about it. It is the decisive close of one chapter and the beginning of another. It, it ends by saying they worshipped him as he was going up and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. This shows the wonderful result of the ministry of Jesus in the disciples' lives. They worshipped him. They finally worshipped him. They understood. They understood things now. This means they knew that Jesus was God and they gave him the honor that he deserves. They returned to, to, to Jerusalem. This means they did just what Jesus told them to do. They went there to wait. In this they were obedient and with great joy. This means they really believed Jesus rose from the dead and they let that joy the joy of that fact touch everything in their life. And then they continually praised and blessed God in the temple. This means that they lived as public followers of Jesus and they could not hide their love and worship towards him. A little before they could not believe for joy, but now they were joyful just because they believed. When God does this kind of work in his people, we say, Amen. Woohoo! Oh, so good, so good, so, so, so good. Man, so much to say, honestly, about the life of Jesus. But I'm going to end this episode here because it's a long one. And I feel like it ended on a beautiful, beautiful note that they left Jesus as he's ascended now, a risen Savior. He's ascended and now he's transferring the power of the gospel into his apostles to wait for the Holy Spirit and then once Holy Spirit is upon them, they will release that gospel and the glory and power of God and build that church now on the lived example of Jesus. And with that mantle being passed to them, so to speak, they leave and they go praising and blessing God. And we say amen to that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Narrow Road Podcast. You know I'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode, so please check back on in and, um, and we're going to keep going 365 days of podcasting. So I hope that you will catch me back on the podcast tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening and bye-bye.